I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and your host of Give Me Strength. What makes a strong person to you? Could it be the kilograms in your deadlift, the miles you're able to run, or is it as simple as saying how you feel, an inner feeling of strength that's there regardless of your fitness abilities? Each week, I'll be looking into this concept, asking extraordinary women about their ever-evolving relationship with exercise and how their experiences have shaped who they are today. Together, we'll discuss the positives of living a stronger life, both physically and mentally, in the hope that we can inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. After what has been the most incredible opportunity to present this podcast, I knew that we had to finish on a high. I spent the past 10 weeks interviewing some of the most remarkable and inspiring women I've ever come across, and I wondered if I'd be able to top that with my final guest. But in true, it was meant to be style. My final guest happened to be free just when we needed her for our final episode, and here I am, sat with one of my idols to end series one with a bang. Dame Kelly Holmes is a double Olympic champion, a Dame, winner of Sports Personality of the Year, European Athlete of the Year, an honorary colonel in the British Army, an author, podcast host, and one of the UK's most popular and respected athletes. Kelly, I mean, you are everywhere and you're doing so much. So we're so grateful to have you here today. What have you been up to for the last few months? Well, what I do in my normal life, let's say, and I don't know if I've actually got one, is motivational speaking for corporates. Oh, wow. I I didn't know that. I stand on stage in front of three, a thousand people and I talk. (laughs) Um, So that's what I do normally. But uh, I suppose my army role has given me an opportunity to get back into that. Mm -hmm. And then obviously I'm getting back into the fitness industry that's exploded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I juggle yeah you juggle, juggle a lot. lot you wear lots of different hats so I'm gonna go back you were born in April 1970 can you tell me about your earliest memories of this time and were they happy ones did you have like a really nice childhood yeah so my mum had me when she was 17 so very young and especially back in the 70s um, I'm a mixed race child my dad left when I was well less than one I think I don't know I have no idea um, and so my mum who I think I've got a bit of my resilience from, even though she's nothing, she, she was nothing like me, was such a fighter at that age because mm. she was told by my granddad that, you know, she couldn't keep hold of me until she could support herself. So she put me in these children's homes and um, she met my stepdad, who I call my dad to this mm. day, when I was about four or five. And finally I, I got out. And I just remember talking to her when I was doing my autobiography back in 2005. I said, like, can you tell me about, we never really spoke about it. So mm. Can you tell me about the time? And she says, well, the adoption services came to adopt you and were making me sign the forms. And then I just broke down and I couldn't let go of you. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. And it's so weird how you listen to people's lives because you don't understand that your parents yeah. have had childhood as well. And do you have any memories of that time? Uh, in the ch- children's homes, I do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was all good. I had no, you know, there's nothing that kind of made me feel bad about being in that Mm. situation but I do remember it yeah I mean Generation Game was a a TV show that was very 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 popular my mum happened to be on it and I was at the children's home and they called me down they said your mum's on television we can imagine (laughs) how weird that is I'm not with mum but she's on telly so yeah so I do remember it but it was okay and did you learn anything did you have any like early lessons that you picked up from your family I know that you were super close with your mum do you feel like there were any early lessons that they laid down for you coming out of the children's home that have like sort of shaped who you are now I think there was a little bit of me so I 
was born and bred in Kent. So I went to a school, all white kids, this is all I know. And I remember very early on thinking you can either be different and feel that people are taking the mick or mm. whatever out of you mm. or you can stand out amongst the crowd mm. and I don't know what it was within me but I always had that thing okay great I'm unique mm. I'll stand out mm. and I, I think going through that attitude with life mm-hmm. again didn't put me in any awkward positions I just like this is who I am and you have to take me for who I am mm. but I always kept my morals I always kept my values mm. I genuinely think one of the best life lessons is just to be a nice person yeah like you'll get is. work and you'll get far in life if you are just a nice person when I went to this school it's one of the things that people said they said people like to work with nice people so be a nice person and you'll go far <laughs> so I think it's a really good lesson and yeah there's there's a lot to be, a lot to be said for having good manners as well <laughs> um, you showed an early promise in athletics and you went on to win the English school's 1500 metres in 1983 talk to me about this time so you said that sport was like your thing when did you start to show a bit of a promise for it and was there anyone that was sort of championing you at that time yeah definitely it was without a doubt my PE teacher Mm. so I was at school I was the child that sat out of school most of the time in classes you know when the French teachers talk in French to you you have no idea you know you're going to kind of answer back and I was out of the class and it was my PE teacher said Kelly you actually have a really good talent in running because you beat all the girls at two years old but you've got to start believing you can do something and actually be in someone so she got me into a cross-country race hated cross-country I was leading with about 30 metres to go and it was the first time ever that I felt like this pit in my stomach Mm. thinking I hated losing Mm. I mean it just came to me and so she got me to go to an athletics club then within six months I became all England schools champion 1500 Mm. metres as she said and uh, it was that identity I think Mm. suddenly I had a name at school I was Kelly people wanted to be in my team and I think school really shapes your mindset back then, early mm. days. Mm-hmm. But I think that's so key that, that at an early age, you found your thing. And I think it's so important Like I wasn't academic either and I really struggled at school. But actually, I found like drama and music and all those kind of things were my thing. And suddenly I was like, oh, OK, well, I might not be massively academic, but I'm good at these things. And suddenly you get this, like you said, identity and confidence that you didn't necessarily have beforehand. And I think that's so nice that that was really nurtured in you. You did go on to leave school at 16. And I was wondering why. Like, what was that just because you hated academia and it was like, right, I'm done with this, I'm gonna go? And then you went on to work in, I know you had some like pretty rogue jobs. Sweet Shop was one of them, yeah, which I love. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Well, see, when I was 14, I had two dreams one was to be in the army's physical training instructor, and one was to be Olympic champion. <gasps> I just was inspired by the Olympic Games when I was 14, watching British athletes, and one of them, Sebastian Coe, who led the 2012 Olympic Games, was one of the best middle distance runners in the world. Mm. He won the 1500 metres and also we had the army careers officers come into our school and I was just inspired by what the army was. So having not done very well at all in my exam results, I didn't have much options, but I wanted to work. So I started working in a leisure centre. But earlier than that, I started working. I was a paper round girl, um, two paper rounds in the morning just to get money. And then I'd bike to school because we didn't have a bus or anything. Bike to school three miles, bike to training, do my training, bike back. That was my life when I was a teen. Mm. And then um, I worked in a hospital for people with 
used to call it handicap, but people with disabilities, mental and physical disabilities. Mm. And it was a men's unit. I mean, you've got to imagine, I was 16 years old and I was washing, cleaning, dressing, feeding men. Prince Beck and I was left alone to do these things but again it was a big learning curve because it's about responsibility and people that were depending on me to get through life the best Mm. way and Mm. one of the biggest things I ever remember was that give back to somebody because uh, this one guy he always smoked like a trooper and he didn't know money and I thought no I'm going to set him a task to go to the sweet shop because I knew the owner and I had to teach them money like I think it was half P then but half P one P two P everything up for him to get as much money for his fags and I just couldn't believe I'm sitting there and he's learning this money and things like that always I think stick with me because I've always been into helping people and Mm. the sort of that was a big like as a 16 year old that taught me a lot about myself Mm. and patience and helping and and nurturing people that's like an amazing life skill to have you know yeah I mean I used to clean windows for people in our little council estate I'd wash cars (laughs) I'd do anything I'd go shopping for the old people to get chocolate bars and like if you're gonna get it get yourself you you know a working class family I didn't get pocket money so I'd get it myself and do you think that's the mentality of an athlete as well if you're gonna get it you've got to get it yourself you almost like laid those foundations down early on because it was like I'm gonna do this for me and I can't rely on anyone else to help me get there. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, as an athlete, it's such an individual sport when you're performing. I mean, you learn later on that it's a team around you, like Mm. in any business or any world, right? It's a team that help you get to that next stage. But as an individual, you have to have the mindset that you're going to get yourself down there, you're going to do the Mm. training, you're going to be on that track, and you're going to do the session, and Mm. you're going to do it the best you can be. And no one can make you run around that track. No. So you can have everything else in place. Like back then, it was just me and my coach. But obviously, as you get on in life, there's lots of other people... I think there was always a bit of a drive just to be successful, I, I suppose. Think, no, I think it's amazing. And you just mentioned your coach. We've spoken to a lot of females who are in different sports, all different sports, and they all have sort of a memory of their first coach or the person that really guided their journey to success. Can you talk to me about who that person was for you? Yeah, so... Along with my PE teacher, Debbie Page, who I'm still friends with to this day, can you imagine? And I called the day I got back from Athens to say thank you (gasps) for leaving in me. Oh my God, that's the best story ever. (laughs) Um, My coach, Dave Arnold, my biggest memory was him. He had white hair, big floppy cap, uh, Wellington boots. And he said to me, (laughs) and Dave, my mum dropped me off and says, you better stick at this one because I was a kid, give everything a go and give up after, you know. Um, until I found this one thing I was good at. And he said to me, right, go for a run. And I want you to talk the whole way round. And you just keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. I got back. And obviously about then I had a little bit of attitude as well as a teen, like you do. I was like, why did you get me to talk the whole way round? I was like breathing really heavy, you know. And he said to me, because when you need your breath for running, it's going to be just yours. You don't have to strain it. You can control it. And it was the be- one of the best tips as a young person. But he, you know, he was a person, he, he worked full time for a living like most volunteer coaches do mm. he'd come after work he'd give up your time Tuesday, Thursday when I got better a Friday, Saturday, S- Sunday going competing mm. and you know you can't do anything without volunteers and coaches these days that are going to get a young person to mm. hopefully to the top mm. But despite your obviously flair in athletics you then actually went on to join the British Army at age 18 I wanted to talk about the army you know what did it what did it mean to you how how did that path kind of come into your onto your radar and and why the british army 
So the army came to school. They showed us a video. Um, Navy and the Air Force. They showed us the Air Force I didn't want because it was sort of the administrative side and not flying around in a plane, mm. which I probably would have done. Showed us the Navy and I couldn't swim when I was 14, so that was a no. Then they showed the Army soldiers screaming and shouting at all the others. I was like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I tried to go and I got my mum for my birthday when I was 14, 15, 16 and 17 to take me to the careers office and I was too young. You had to be 17 and nine months back then. When I was 17, I got there and I did an entrance test and the only thing available to me that I actually was interested in was being a driver. I wanted to be a physical training instructor. I wanted to go in because it gave me a sense of purpose, a career. I was going to meet new people, maybe a chance to travel. I didn't know. But it was just, again, thinking, if I stay where I live in Kent, I had no exam. So what would I do? I felt like I had nothing mm. other than this kind of mm. drive to be good at something. Mm -hmm. And so by joining the army... That gave me a lot of skills, you know, at 17. Mm. I was just before my 18th birthday, actually, and uh, you're meeting, like, a, another 30 girls that will all come from all over the country, and mm. you're going into a military environment where it's very strict and disciplined, mm. you know, and you've got to iron your own clothes. I mean, can you imagine ironing your clothes at 17? And, you know, but do you, did you like that? Did you like the, the kind of the regimentedness of it? Yeah, I did. I liked the camaraderie, and I liked the point of structure. I think mm. it's really good for a young person to have almost a direction and a structure and know what's what people expect of you and I think that's something personally should be instilled anyway in younger people but I think I got a lot from that yeah did you feel like the army could sort of scratch the itch that athletics was giving to you or did you still have that sort of burning desire to actually do your athletics and to compete at a higher level was that still always in the background finishing athletics my coach Dave was distraught but I wanted to grow I wanted to yeah. have a job you know mm. and I felt that was my way so when I joined the army I didn't tell anyone that I was this international athlete and of course but I was beating everybody in the running so suddenly they found out <laughs> <laughs> and um, they coaxed me a year later to join the army athletics team which I did and I still hold some of the records to this day I mean I can't believe it <laughs> I think I won everything from like 200, 400, 800, 15, 3000 at one stage but I really loved being in the army a sense of mm. responsibility. You go through rank structures. Mm. I retraded when I was 21 to become a physical training instructor. Mm -hmm. I failed my first course, which was the first time I'd gone to a point where I thought, oh my God, someone's told me I'm really not good at this sort of sporting luck. And life generally is very subjective. It's somebody telling you, you can be good. Whereas yeah. in athletics, it's black and white. Yeah. You are or you aren't. Mm. You're fast or you're not. Mm. You medal or you don't. Mm. That point was a big learning curve for me as a young person because it's either you give up on something or you go, I'm going to prove you wrong. And I went on every single course you can ever imagine. To get into the army, I did 25 metres doggy paddle. That's how bad I was at swimming, but that's how determined I was to get, oh. to, to get in. So then I actually, my bronze were down and I did everything so that the next time I went on my course, I was like, I am good. Do you feel like coming in as someone that is mixed race, did you feel like you had that almost more of a point to prove? Did you feel that weight on you or did you just think, you know, because you'd spoken about how at that time you'd sort of saw yourself as being different, but in a good way? Yeah, I never ever looked at the colour thing. I just see me. So I never had that. I think it was just about of wanting to be accepted and proving that I could be good. Yeah. And I think that's always the thing is like, 
any motivation that I've ever had, particularly like within my career, I guess, is when someone says that you can't do something, you're like, no, I'm actually going to do it. And I think that's always what motivates me. Going back to athletics, though, you were persuaded to go back. I think obviously during your last time in the army, you started competing. And then after a long break training, you then went back into athletics. What was that transition like? Yeah, so I watched Olympics again when I was 22 years old. I was inspired because there was a girl that I used to run against when I was a junior running and I was in my barrack room in the army, so a little room with a bed and a wardrobe. And it just reignited that dream to Mm. be Olympic champion. It never went away. It's Mm. just that period of time. And within six months of deciding that I'd do a little bit more training. I wasn't doing a lot, to be honest. Everything was in webbing, like uh, my combats, my boots and my, you know, weapon and <laughs> jumping over sort courses and I things. I find it really hard to picture you in all of that <laughs> kit. Imagine. I'm like, I, you're so teeny tiny and I just think, oh my God, I can't imagine you being in the army, but yeah, you did it. <laughs> I did, I did. And um, after six months, I got selected for Great Britain to run in the World Championships, you know, and I didn't have any clue about elite level athletics at a senior Mm. I just ran I was kind of like yeah I just ran and ended up winning the UK championships like no one knew who I was and I didn't know who I was I just sort of ran you know and then that was it it took off I went to world champs got to semi-final following year I became Commonwealth Games champion in Victoria Canada still serving in the army using my leave to go and compete coming back and them guarding the barracks of a weapon it was quite a <laughs> and like so for me I look at that and I just think you were clearly born to do it you know some people have to train incredibly hard and I'm not saying that you didn't but have to train you know really really hard to get to where they are and to, to, to achieve gold medal mm. success but it seems as though you just sort of had this like completely natural talent to to run and to run really really well did you feel like you didn't need much coaching it just sort of really came naturally to you yeah it's strange because um having been a junior international athlete I suppose I had that uh, ability to know about tactics Mm. and run well and push myself and I do think there's a difference between somebody being a very good at something and someone going I want to be better and pushing themselves Mm. you know you you would see it in your own industry where someone trains Mm. and they're training only probably really at 60 or 80 percent they don't really come with an a game and train 100 Mm percent they think they're training hard but they're not really training hard Mm -hmm. you can see the ones that are busting a gut you know so I think I had a natural ability but then going from that to being consistent and then being one of the best in the world you know you have to train hard Mm -hmm. and I was very lucky I was a very strong young woman that helped me and actually mixing both international athletics and my career my army career I was different to most women you know I was just sort of yeah I can do this you know Mm. both in the head and the body Mm. it was only when I started to do more running and less of my soldiering type work that I started to get injured and I realized Mm. now that that was a definitely a detrimental effect Mm. because I was such a strong person Mm. but it also becomes then a head game because Mm. once you become one of the best in the world expectations come on you Mm -hmm. you have to handle that Mm. and still serving in the military full-time and try and use my leave to go away and compete it's a different head game altogether it was only when I became a full-time athlete um, when I was 27 did that sort of change yeah you made the decision obviously to compete professionally and you've spoken about how at that time that was when your mental health started to suffer and it was during this time that you were diagnosed I read with clinical depression which you've spoken about quite openly and really quite brave of you to come out and talk about that because I know that it's quite a difficult thing but 
you weren't actually allowed to take antidepressants, which I was quite shocked at because of was the fact you were competing. How difficult was that time for you? Uh, it was difficult. I think the choice to not take antidepressants later on was because I was unsure. Like I didn't. So yeah, if I go back a bit, so looking back. I think that there was a gradual build-up to getting to the point where I had the mental health problem. Mm. So I've just been doing it on my Instagram at the moment and depicting all of my Mm. uh, years as an athlete. I wrote one which um, was in about 2001, so three years before Olympics. I'd just won a bronze medal at the Sydney Games. I was 30 years old, didn't really know Mm. whether that next four-year cycle was a good thing to go for or Mm. not. But I'd already had so many injuries, ruptured calves, torn Achilles, Mm. stress fractures, Mm. glandular fever. And at that time, I'm just resilient, you know, because I'm like, if I can come forth at an Olympic Games, getting pipped on the line Mm. with a stress fracture, I can do it. I always had that positive outlook to a negative thing. In 2001, I got chronic fatigue syndrome again. I started to get really depressed, but I didn't really know it was that because you didn't talk about it back then. I didn't know. I just mm. thought I was upset all the time. Then I was competing still with the dream of being an Olympic champion. So I had Commonwealth Games, which I won gold in Manchester. Then I won a bronze at Europeans and medals at the Worlds. So I still had a positive outlook, yet emotionally I was drained and it was just a you know I'm always fighting and fighting then in 2003 had the worst time of my life where I was in training camp just prior to the world champs in Paris looked in the mirror in my little room and hated everything about me I hated myself so badly I wanted the floor to open up I wanted to jump Mm -hmm. in it and I literally didn't want to be here anymore I didn't want to see the next day Mm -hmm. and at that same time I saw some scissors and I started cutting myself every day that I'd been injured which had been quite a lot of days and when you're wearing crop tops and shorts not a lot of places Mm -hmm. you can do it so then I was hiding it with makeup and at that I didn't understand because I'd never known anyone to be in that world I'd Mm. never heard of depression it wasn't a subject that was a general subject because when you're in sport you cry on the physio bed but everyone essentially thinks it's because you're you're hurting from the pain Mm. and you are but also the emotion of thinking will I ever get over it you know why am I cursed it almost like you just keep knocking yourself and I was in a bad 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 place then but Equally, two weeks of hell, I got a silver medal at the World Championships and no one knew what was going on. And that was a hard time. Do you think there's something in that poker face of of being in athletics? You know, like we look up to these people and we put them on such a pedestal and, you know, the whole nation is riding on your success. We're desperate for you to do well. Mm. That's a lot of pressure to deal with. If you then come out and say, you know, I'm, I'm... suffering with mental health condition I've got depression did you fear the the, almost like the backlash to that is that Mm. why you kept it to yourself or was it more just the fear of of I guess admitting that something was wrong to yourself even we'll be back after this welcome back to give me strength Well, now, you know, we're in 2019, we're open so much more to talking about it Mm. and saying, would you not come out? Back then, you just it wasn't even something that I'd even thought about telling anyone else. If I called my family and says, you know, I'm really struggling, they probably would say, come home, you know, just do it. I didn't want to hear that. I wanted Mm. to be like the best athlete in the world. I wanted to be number one. I wanted to be Olympic champion. Mm. I didn't want to talk to my coaches and my 
training partners because I didn't want to bring a negative feel to the camp mm. so I kind of felt I can't say that I'm really upset to them and it almost like I felt alone you know I felt really alone on dealing with it and I only spoke to one person in France who I think she was a French doctor and I just said this is all just going wrong and I knew that she wouldn't know anyone I tried to tell her, you know, this has been going on for mm-hmm. years and how do I break the cycle? And she said, but you haven't given up yet. Mm-hmm. And she was the one that said to me about antidepressants and I was so scared because I was such a, I'm such a like against people taking drugs and sports so freaking bad and I was like but what if I don't know and I can't go into the doctor because I don't want to tell them you've given me antidepressants and ask them are they okay because then they know yeah. there's something wrong yeah. so I didn't take them they, she gave me these chocolate herbal things which was alright because I was into chocolate <laughs> <laughs> and that was it but I was still scared you know and I just thought the only thing that can keep me going is my hope and that was the hope yeah. of achieving yeah Obviously, with depression, it's something that we do speak about a lot and it's quite openly. And you've said, you know, in 2019 now, it's it's almost talked about on a daily basis. There's podcasts and there's people speaking about it on social media. And I think it's wonderful. But I think when it comes to self-harm, it's one of those things that's still a bit of a taboo subject. And I'd be interested to understand in your own words how you would describe that experience with self-harm because it's something that I think not many people actually understand. Yeah, I think it's... Um it would be right for me to say that self-harm isn't just about cutting. Mm. It could be about somebody that has a nice calming glass of wine in an evening that then turns to a half a bottle to a bottle a night because mm. they're trying to suppress something that they don't really want to admit to or to feel. You know, it could be anything that's a, a self-hatred type of attack on you. Mm. It's almost like, in a weird way, having a release that you're hurting yourself to get the tears out. It wasn't a control thing for me. It was a hatred of my body. And I felt like I didn't know what else to do. I would have either punched a wall and broke my hand or mm. something to scream, but mm. I couldn't scream because otherwise people would hear me. Yeah, yeah. So I'm screaming in my head, you know. And I had a breakdown. You know, I literally, that was the worst time ever at that period of time because you just do not know where to turn. You just want to cry out everything but you can't and you can't always explain to somebody what it is so you know by self-harming you're really you're punishing yourself for whatever it is inside you that isn't being sorted or dealt with in the right way because you don't know how to then go through that next stage and I you know I am pretty scared of seeing the numbers of young people self-harming and you just realise then that there's a lot of struggle in society at the moment where they don't know who to turn to or what to do about whatever situation they feel they're in. I have self-harmed since as well but also I knew the time that when my mum passed away and I did it I knew it wasn't going to bring her back and it made me stop and then I was like I'm not going to do this again because it's not an answer Mm. but I've learnt that through I'd say because of age and sort of more mature in myself and more mm. understanding who I am mm. and then dealing with problems mm. right away. It sounds like to me that you were dealing with a lot of stuff internally and on your own and I guess that's the nature of like, of the sport as well is that you do have this team around you but like we spoke about earlier, you are going out and you're on your own and it's you versus you kind of thing. Who was your support network at this time then? Was there anyone that at that time, apart from this French doctor obviously, was there anyone that really helped pull you through? Because you said you went two weeks later to go and win a medal and I'm trying to understand <laughs> how you go from being in that, that black hole which sounds awful to then getting yourself together and standing on that start line thinking I'm going to do this I'm going to race yeah that's a, 
that's a good question. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I always say to people that sometimes you have to look at remember the good things that have happened and actually how good you are at something mm. and that helps you start to find a way to not get rid of what's going on but to pull you through it because I was in a bad place I mean yeah. I was in such a bad place yet I was still getting ready for a championship and I didn't want to give up on that because that was me that was what made me feel good mm. you know it made me feel happy so it's kind of like I got to try and do this and no one knew what was going on yet I stood on that rostrum with a silver medal around my neck and that one person knew and I didn't tell anyone and it was only coming into 2004 when of course the Olympic Games was going to go I was going to be 34 it would be my third Olympic Games I knew I would never go any further but I'd had such a great time since 2002 I'd been winning I'd won four medals in those two years I always believed and this is where I feel very, very lucky that I always believe in my dream. I mean, I, I, I can't explain how much it was in my head and my heart that I could do this thing. <laughs> Hence why I think I carried on. Mm. But um, in 2004, January, I know I made like this massive decision that the only thing letting me down was my body and my health. Because I, like I said, had lots of health problems. And I decided to speak to my physio, but I didn't tell her emotionally what was going on but I said I know the only thing stopping me is me breaking down and it was my almost cry for help to say I need you but it was very much athletic space yeah but I knew that if I was injury free that would help my mind and it's just so interesting how for you it was so much easier to deal with the physical and I think that's the same for mm. many people that suffer with mental health for you the physical was the obvious these are my symptoms externally yeah. so I'm going to deal with these head on in the hope that actually the internal stuff will work its way out and yeah. for some people it does I'm sure and for some people it, it won't but I think that's really interesting that just as a mindset it's it's how we often you work you know we, we yeah. work off the fact that we can see the external stuff so that's the stuff that I can deal with but actually the internals often what we really need to focus on to look inside and say well what's actually going on in there you know yeah and I think now you know god I, I hope that the athletes that are coming up are questioned are asked you know I can see that you might have an injury in your ankle but how's your head how are you how coping you feel? with this yeah, how do you feel exactly. you know like if we can learn one thing from your experience and everything you're saying it seems as though that would be what would be the major take home is you're sat on the physio bed because you're injured but actually how are you really doing because yeah. I'm sure that that connection between mind and body is way more linked than we even realise obviously you came through that dark period and I do want to talk about your Olympic success because it's probably like the most <laughs> memorable moment in my mind of, of ever watching an Olympics I think I can cannot even explain to you the, that feeling well you can tell us about the feeling <laughs> but watching that and and seeing you on your second race win that gold can you talk just talk to me about olympics 2004 athens yeah i mean it was an incredible time obviously but i think it meant more because of what had happened mm. and also when i'd been so close but so far i look back and i think this was a journey this was my life was mapped out beforehand winning the 800, I was complete shock, hence the photo that everyone laughs at and the videos that I show when I talk with my eyes popping out of my head. Uh, and the 1500 was a dream come true. I mean, since I was 14. And it's hard almost to describe the emotions of it because it was so, I was so in shock about why I won the two goals and how I won the two goals I mean still to this day think how the hell did I win the 800 meters but I think I was just right it's my first year in seven I hadn't been injured because of that 
I felt happier. I felt I was more in control of me. Mm. I had more confidence. The team around me were great. They were just making sure every minute detail was done. I was eating better than ever. I was sleeping better than ever. And we all know those two things mm. are like recipe so for successes, right? Mm. My training had been faster than I'd ever been. My recovery was better because I was looking after myself because I knew this was the last time. And anyone around me, I was saying please just help me not get injured or ill just that's all I need mm. and because of that it was just getting better and better so when I won the 1500 meters so I crossed the line it was like this big ton weight thing like literally flew off my shoulders because when I was running the 1500 I always sound weird saying this I feel like something holding me up really? like, like I was sort of floating in the 1500 <gasps> final like nothing could touch me and then when I finished it was like this big weight just left me. And I remember sitting in the press conference as I can now be me. And also when I was at the end of the 15, it was almost like a black and white movie, like ticker taken back, you know, sort of thing, like going through my whole career. I just believe, I believe in fate. I have to say, I now believe in fate. Well, also, you also believe in people saying saying no and you and you coming back and saying, actually, I can. And I actually read something where, where doctors advised you to retire because you were at the point where you were just getting so injured. I actually wrote down a list of your injuries, which is like even too long to read now. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy what your body went through yeah. to the point that you were told, retire, your career is done. And, and actually, I also read something which is quite amazing in itself in that someone said that your gold in Athens is described as one of Britain's greatest sporting moments, but also one to catch the nation by surprise. I don't think anyone was expecting you to do as well as you did. And almost that probably was yeah. that I'm going to prove everyone wrong mentality yeah. Times a thousand. <laughs> well, I, yeah, well, I was quite lucky in a way because, unfortunately, for Paula Radcliffe, she had the medal around her neck before she'd even started those games, being world record holder, you know, incredible marathon runner, and everyone expected her to win gold. Mm -hmm. So all eyes, all press, all media on her. I was a person that would definitely come back with a medal, but, you know, something will go wrong. That was the sort of thing. And I remember being in such great shape in our holding camp prior to Athens. And I didn't know at that stage, two weeks before the Games, that I was actually going to do the 8 and the 15. I couldn't decide right until the last minute. And they said, do you want to do any media? And I said, no, actually, I don't. I said, I'll only do one media, and it was the British Forces Radio, because it gets thrown around everywhere of people serving out in frontline and all that lot. And I thought, if there's one thing I can do is to give a little bit of excitement to people out on the frontline, away from home, and I only did one radio for the whole time. I refused to do any others, because I said, you know what? For once, I'm going to let my legs do the talking, because I was in the shape of my life. I didn't want to curse myself. I thought, no, because yeah. no one expected it. Yet we knew as yeah. a team yeah. we were ready. So I had the pressure off from that sense. All I had was the pressure of me running, mm. staying upright, not falling like I had in the world champs early in the year, mm -hmm. you know, get into the finals and doing my thing. I just went in there thinking I'm 34 in the best shape of life. I was running faster than I'd ever run in loads of things. And I thought if I come back from the Olympics with two medals of any colour, what a way to end a career. Mm. And <laughs> clearly the signs and the gods were there for me. I've got goosebumps. I must still remember it to this day. You then went on to kind of, you did a few competitions, but I guess I think injuries came back to hamper you a little bit. What was life like after athletics? How did you put to bed your baby that had been almost like that thing in your life that was omnipresent throughout everything? How did you sort of put to bed that identity and then find life after athletics? 
It's very hard and it's a similar situation to military people coming out of retirement. You lose your identity, the sense of who you are, what you're going to do, the structure's gone, the people you've had around you don't need to be in the way that they've been supporting you before. And uh, it was a pretty hard time, actually. I retired end of 2005. In 2006, I went back into my depression very, very badly because I had no sense of who I was yet. I'd won two gold medals, the only yeah. female ever to do it in Great Britain, the only person since 1921 to do it, and yet I still had that sense of, who am I? But do you not think that that's just a prime example of how mental health, it doesn't care who you are, what you've done, how successful you are, yeah. it can affect absolutely anyone? Yeah, definitely. And I think when you're unsure of yourself and then you feel at loss, that's how it can start seeping into people, mm. you know? So, yeah, so it was a hard time actually making that transition. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I was appointed um, when Gordon Brown came to power as the prime minister. I was doing loads of charity work and I did this event with him. And for some reason, I just came up with this idea that, oh, I could be national school sport champion. And I went to speak to him on his first day. He was at this charity event. I went, oh, Prime Minister, I'd love to come and speak to you about, you know, maybe being national school sport champion. I could fly around the country and inspire on the kids. He said, come to my office tomorrow, second day in office. So I'm talking to him about this thing. And he said, yes, OK. So oh then, the next three years, I was national school sport champion. There's never been another one. I flew around literally the whole country, went to all these schools because my whole mission was can I inspire them? Yeah. You know, coming back as like the only double Olympic champion, obviously, my mm. name was sort of there. So uh, I did that. And then I started a charity, which originally was to help athletes transition, because at that point I knew so many athletes were struggling. No one knows mm. about all this stuff. You know, when mm. people come back from Olympics, it's all a high. Highs are so high in sport, mm. you know, even just being part of a team you know yeah. when you're in the early days is massive back then it wasn't charitable to help sports people transition so that's how my charity now has been going what 12 years and we work with disadvantaged young children areas of deprivation mm. and helped over 300,000 young people wow. and transition nearly 600 athletes so that was I just come up with an idea and think I want to make it happen mm. and you have to you go through the loops you get knockbacks you get setbacks and mm. I always think there's nothing ever worse than what I had in my athletics career that's how I go mm. through life now so I'll just go for it yeah if you could give advice of how we could better support athletes these days what would be the, th the things that you would change I think the system generally needs to look at the social return on investment you know sports people now get a huge amount of funding that's why we are known as number one in the world at so many sports, mm. especially when you get to Olympic level. But I think the skills that sports people can bring to others, and not just about sport, about resilience, confidence, teamwork, communication skills, all life skills that we all have to have, I think that if you utilise those in areas of deprivation in communities and bring athletes back into community that should be it so for me personally I would definitely support athletes going through to make we create role models and hope and you know exhilarance and everything mm -hmm. in our country but I'd also have a contractual bit to say you have to then give a certain amount of days back into your communities where you started what you did before to then get the next ones up because mm -hmm. I think that's where we may be missing out on and also that support mechanism of 
with settlement. You know, you're going to come to an end of a career. It could become premature if you get a really mm. bad injury. And when you've come out of school at some ages, becoming a full-time athlete yeah. now, you know, or not had any education or work experience, then you get to the end of a sport career and you think, what do I do now? I think there needs to be something put in place. And there is. I mean, English Institute of Sport, mm. uh, UK Sport now are doing a lot more, BOA are doing a lot mm. more, Team GB, but I think that look at the athlete as a person and go, what can you do for society and change later on? You have done so much in your time. I know that you've gone on to do more with the British Army. You've done, you've written books, you've done a podcast. What are your future goals? I am so passionate of making people believe they can be good at something you know, push to that next level. Don't just be complacent. Don't think you can't. Lots of people can do so much more than they ever think possible. And so one of the things I do, I do, um, I could say, motivational talking, a lot of mental health in the workplace now, which is mm. becoming a huge thing. Mm. And I'm really passionate about companies putting in strategies to help support employees because mm. at the end of the day they're still humans they've still got lives they're still individuals you know so that and then also yeah building propositions so i'm in the middle of building some apps the workouts cool. i'm linking my military life with those apps oh, because uh, i'm now a colonel as you said back you in the are. armored corps which actually i have to tell you this this appointment was signed off by the queen a change in army policy because i'm the only male or female to be attached to a regular unit that. which for me was like oh my god i get to go in tanks and everything it's so cool i just find it absolutely fascinating that you are still juggling these two roles and still navigating that like incredible kind of journey that you've been on with the army everyone talks about leaving a legacy and i think athletes definitely do have all of them have a legacy you know we remember those moments so well if you could write your own legacy what would it look like oh wow gosh that's a good one i wouldn't necessarily write about me but like for people to see that you know in life you might go through this journey but end of the day you just got to keep pushing for what you believe in and mm. you can come out on top I mean I don't really I just want to be somebody that proved that you can no matter what challenges you go through in life you can still fulfill it in a way that you want to and live your own life as mm. positive as possible mm. when are you happiest uh these days sitting on my sofa watching trash tv with an engine and a chocolate uh, <laughs> Laying in my bath with my, my candles and my <laughs> bubble bath on and saying, this is me time, yeah. go away. Um, no, and also, actually, I have to say, I love, I absolutely love meeting people at an event, doing my thing maybe on stage, getting people to open up, be more transparent, to mm. be more honest with themselves, and especially in the mental health arena, let's stop the stigmatism, let's just talk. We're mm. all just getting through life the best we can and we're all going to have ups and downs so normalise it mm. and after I've done those talks I come off stage and I get these people crying thank you so much I'm now going to go and speak to someone you know just that feeling mm. like I can make a difference mm. really makes me happy mm -hmm. in whatever that means What does strength look like to you? Uh, just having resilience to like I say, fight for what you want and mm. just be a, have a inner strength inside you to realise that, you know, even through the down days, you can just keep going. And also, if it's not about mental health, you know, you go in the gym and you go and train, 
believe you can do a bit more, mm. you know. Go, go in there thinking, I can do this because we all start at the bottom somewhere and you can always progress, but you can only progress if you believe you can progress. I need you like sitting on my shoulder all the time, <laughs> but particularly when I'm in the gym and I'm like, oh, should I put an extra few kilos on? No, not today. I'll just stay at my usual weight. <laughs> no, it's like everyone, isn't it? It's having a go. I think people can't progress without having a real definitive reason for doing it. Yeah. You know, what is your aim in life? And you have to keep that in your head all the time this is why I am doing this Mm. so go then and try Mm. to do it (laughs) my final question for you which is a bit of a tough one but I always ask it is who in your life demonstrates strength the most wow in my life at the point when my mother was ill before she passed away her she had myeloma she didn't want to die she'd cry and tell me she didn't want to die she was too young yet she just fought through it so at that period of time um, definitely my mother thank you so much for being on the podcast Kelly for being our final guest as well I'm so happy that we could make this work I cannot thank you enough I thought I'd mention you've got your own podcast as well on mental health and all of your books so definitely go and give those a look and find yeah. you on social media where you do some really great <laughs> workout posts every day which I love you always give me so much motivation um, but yeah thank you so much thank you. we all know how much powerful quotes can inspire us so I've selected some of my favourite quotes from women who've inspired me to be your daily mantra through to the next episode. Today's quote comes from Victoria Pendleton, who is one of Great Britain's most successful female Olympians. She said, people will put restrictions on your ability, on your aptitude, on your talent, on your character. And to be honest, it's just opinion. Don't let anyone put you in a box or draw your path for you. In the meantime, I would love it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast. And thank you so much for tuning in to Give Me Strength.